0: Everyone, Morinafano. Don't know if you noticed, Kelda It's Te Wiki o Tereo Māori. Tenakoto, 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 katoa, Once, twice, three times. Welcome to you all. It's good to be in church. Yeah? yeah. Awesome. That's what I'm talking about. I must say, I was sitting there before and I'm thinking, I'm feeling a little warm. I think it was the worship. Did you notice that? How good was that first song? Man, I really liked that. Catherine said to me this morning, I was sitting on the couch and I don't know what it was, must have been something about my manner. She's like, you're right. <laughs> maybe maybe everyone gets asked that question every now and then. And I said, yeah, and She's like, what's up? And she said, oh, you just seem a bit edgy. And I thought, well, the truth is something has captured my heart this morning. Something has captured my imagination. And I want, I'm so desperate that we all find it together. I am so desperate that all of us this morning, meet with Jesus Christ in a way that we haven't met him before. Can we just pray into that for a moment? Yeah, let's bow our heads. Father God, I thank you that you are with us, that you are right here with us in our midst. And Father God, with all my heart, my desire is that we would hear from you this morning, that we would unfold your word and it would speak to us like it's you speaking to us right here in this room, right in this moment. And so, Father, we open our hearts before you and we ask that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John, and it is amazing. It starts with this grand statement, in the beginning was the Word. And if you were a Jewish person, that is an exciting beginning because it's got your attention right from the get-go because it is echoing the words of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in the beginning, God. Wow. Wow where is John going to go with this and we have moved through 11 chapters of this gospel and we have focused on a good 3 years worth of ministry and we are about in the middle of the book now and yet we've covered 3 years the remaining half of the book covers only about 2 or 3 weeks doesn't that tell, that tells you something about where John's focus is for this whole story what he most wants us to focus on And we have just come to this moment in the narrative where Jesus has done this incredible thing. He has raised a man from the dead. This man named Lazarus. He had been in the tomb for four days. He'd been in there so long that when Jesus came and said, take away the stone from the tomb, people said, I don't think that's a good idea, Jesus. He will have started decomposing and it will smell. And as we heard so wonderfully last week, Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. And he teaches us, I am the resurrection and the life. And he demonstrates in the most powerful way you could ask that he is none other than the Christ, the son of the living God. He's got my attention. And yet, at this moment in the story, it's like there's a pause. This incredible event has happened We've come through 11 chapters, three years worth of ministry. Jesus has raised a man from the dead, and then we pause. And shortly after this, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and be hailed as a coming king. But here, just for a moment, we stop. What happens here in this in-between moment? It's dramatic. I want to see what happens here. I want to see how people respond to this event, this resurrection Lazarus we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 11 verse 45 it says therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary that was the the sister of Lazarus and had seen what Jesus did the resurrection of Lazarus believed in him but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but his high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So we see two reactions to the resurrection of Lazarus here. The first is that people believe. Some people believe, but others don't. And that's where we have to start. This morning. Others don't. Not everybody responds with belief. Some of the people, in fact, respond very, very differently. That exchange among these religious authorities, the Pharisees and the the high priest, it feels bitter, it feels dark, it feels poisonous, it feels violent. This is a dark, dark moment. And these men plot to take the life of Jesus. Why is that? I ask myself, why is that? These men are saying, there's a problem. This guy is performing all of these miraculous signs. He's just raised a guy from the dead. This is a problem. How how can you respond that way? How can you say, he's just raised someone from the dead? How can, you, how can your response be, this is a problem? And the challenge I, I ask myself, whenever I see a reaction like that, especially among these group of guys called the Pharisees there, is I ask, where am I in this? Where might I have a problem? What might I have a tendency towards? Because these are just human beings like you and I. And so if they can respond this way, so can we. So what do I do with that? And we have to take a step back and look at, well, who were these guys and what was it that threatened them about Jesus? if we remember that these are Pharisees, they are leaders of the Jewish nation, essentially, to the extent that it exists. Israel actually wasn't even a country at this time. It was a part of the Roman Empire. But these guys still had a limited level of influence and authority. They could still do these things. And... The temple existed, the place of worship. And they were in the land that God had given them still. What if all of that was taken away? What if the Romans came and took that away? They were the Jews. They were called to be God's people. The temple was God's dwelling place on earth. What would it mean for those things to be taken away? And what would it mean for their status, what would it mean for their place in society? What would it mean for their identity? What it would it mean to be a Jew anymore if all of those things went away? They had so much invested in all of these things. What if they lost it? You see the problem was that over time, things that had been gifted to this people that God called out of the out of all peoples to be his own. Things that were a gift and a privilege had become or had turned into a sense of entitlement. We are God's people. That temple, that's ours. And we have a special relationship with God. And don't you dare threaten that. Don't you dare. When Jesus taught the, the Jewish people, he said, when you know me, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they said, they said, How can you say we need to be set free? We've never been anyone's slaves. And that's gobsmacking when you remember that they were slaves for 400 years in Egypt as a people. Under bitter oppression. And yet, of course, Jesus wasn't even talking about literal, physical slavery, earthly slavery. He was talking about slavery to sin. About the slavery we have to our human nature, to this tendency to live for ourselves that we much as we try, we can't throw it off. We keep doing bad things. Jesus said, if you want to be free from that, I can offer you freedom from that. And the Jews said, who do you think you are? We've got the temple. This is our land. We are God's people. We're not slaves. We don't need your freedom. We've got this sorted. And you can see how that translates into this bitter, poisonous, dark sense of Entitlement. So that when Jesus is doing these incredible things, their reaction is not, here is God. Their reaction is, we have to kill this guy. Wow. I want to ask you today, is there anything that has taken the place of Christ in your heart? Is there anything that has taken his place? Is there any darkness? Is there any bitterness? Is there anything that has welled up from a sense of entitlement? And it might have come out of a sense of who you are, of your place in society, or a level of prestige associated with your job or what you do. Or maybe it's something quite different that's taken hold of your heart. Maybe it's a a hurt or a pain or a sense of bitterness, a sense of disappointment. James talked to us about a few weeks ago. Are you disappointed with God? Is there a sense of entitlement? Why is this happening to me? I deserve better. Let's take a look at the next part of our passage. Jesus becomes aware of this threat to his life. And yet it's not time for him to go to the cross yet. And so he withdraws to this quiet, remote place in the desert. And then when the time comes, he goes back to visit his friends. So we're going to pick this up at the start of chapter 12. What a different picture. What a different scene. Could this be more different to that dark backroom conversation that the religious leaders were having? Here is a radically different response to Jesus. Jesus is back in Bethany, which I think sounds a little bit like a rock song. The town where Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha are from. And a dinner is served in his honor. And Lazarus is among the guests. Can you imagine that? Sitting around a table and a guy across from the table used to be dead. Lazarus, can you pass me the crackers? Thanks. That would be something else, right? And that was a big deal here too. That's how everyone was reacting. The whole whole of society were looking at Lazarus and now J- here he is with Jesus who raised him from the dead. This is a focal point. That's why the Pharisees were threatened. But here at this dinner, this incredible thing happens. Martha is there, one of the sisters of Lazarus, she's serving and Mary is there too. And Mary worships Jesus extravagantly. She takes this jar of perfume and it says here that this was expensive perfume and that's probably an understatement. This would have been worth perhaps about a year's wages. Can you stop for a moment and think about a year's wages? Now imagine buying a jar of perfume with those wages and imagine breaking it and anointing Jesus with it. This, this is extravagant. This is a profound surrender. This is a willingness to worship at any cost. Wow. And John tells us that the fragrance of this perfume filled the whole house. He says that Mary poured it on the feet of Jesus and actually this This episode is recorded in a number of the other Gospels as well. And if you look at them together, you actually get the sense that the the perfume probably wasn't just poured on Jesus' feet, but across his body. Jesus said, she's done this to prepare my body for burial. And so Jesus is covered in worship. He is covered in this perfume. And the smell. this is not a spritzer. Yeah? This is not getting ready for work. This is, the whole house is filled with this fragrance, with this smell, this incredibly expensive fragrance. This is a picture of worship unlike anything else in the Gospels, in the Bible for that matter probably. This is incredible. So much so Jesus said, this story is going to be told everywhere. And yet in the middle of it, we read this. Not everybody likes this. One of his disciples, one of the disciples of Jesus Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. See, Judas, like the Pharisees, had allowed something different to take hold of his heart. For them, it was their place. It was their cultural identity. It was their religious identity. It was the temple. It was their country. It was their status. For Judas, it was money. It was greed. It was ambition. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Wow. He says, this is right. He says, it is right to pour yourself out before me. The question I want to ask is, how did Mary get to this place? Because wouldn't we all like to be in that place? Sometimes it's hard to worship, isn't it? Sometimes you find it hard to get to this kind of posture in our hearts. And I want to take Mary's story back a little because I want to remind us that she is just like us. You see, just a few days, maybe a week earlier, her brother was still in the grave. And Jesus hadn't come in time to heal him. And she wasn't the only one, but she said when Jesus came, Jesus, if you'd been here sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. And she's full of hurt and resentment and bitterness, and her heart is full of that. She's just like us. Sometimes she finds it hard to worship. And then something profound happens. As we know, Jesus raises her brother from the grave. And if we think, I mean, that is an incredible event, don't get me wrong. A man who is dead is now alive. But if that's all we take out of this, we've missed something big. Because Jesus doesn't just raise Lazarus from the dead. He raises up faith in the hearts of the people, in the hearts of the people who are watching. You might remember, Jesus says, take away the stone. And then he prays out loud in a way that everybody can hear He says this, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. The purpose of this event is nothing less than an authentication of the identity of Jesus. And so in this moment, Mary has this experience not just of Her brother rising, not just of grief, disappearing. But as her brother rises, she dies to herself. And she accepts Jesus Christ as Lord. She believes. She sees something much more. And here's the lesson I want to take for us today. Is that there's only one thing that can occupy your heart at a time. And there is a place in our lives for strong emotions like anger or grief or pain. But if we're not careful, those things can become a sense of entitlement, just like those Pharisees had. Something we hold on to, something that occupies the place of Jesus in our hearts and stops us coming to worship to him. That's what we need to do. We need to learn to die. As you might know, I work two days a week here at the street. And I also work three days a week at a government department, which... Is always a little tricky to explain because it's the Ministry for the Environment, and so I spend, I say, three days a week at the Ministry, and I don't mean the church. <laughs> and last week I was working in the Ministry at the Ministry for the Environment, and I had a rough three days. And in particular, I'm not going to go into the details, but something happened where one of my colleagues did something to me that I felt was really disrespectful. Really deeply disrespectful. And I didn't realize it at, almost at the time, in the, in the, in the busyness of the day. It, I didn't really have a moment to process it, but at the end of it, I realized what had happened and how disrespectful it was. And I started to get angry. I started to get really angry. I thought, how could this person do this to me? That was really, really unfair. It was really really unjust and it was really really disrespectful towards me and it took hold of my heart and I struggled to let it go this happened on a Friday which meant I had four days until I was next going to be working at the ministry and so I had four days to deal with it and every day I had to die to it in fact sometimes I had to die to it multiple times a day I remember leaving church Last Sunday and driving home ended up being a good time, but I just felt this anger start to well up in me again as this incident took hold of my heart. And I said to the Lord, Lord, it's, it's not in my nature to let this go. It keeps rising up within me. But I said, Lord, would you change my nature? Would you change me? And here's what he taught me. You see, a couple of weeks ago, before all of that happened, I had the privilege of sitting down with a couple of other colleagues over there and hearing their stories. We got into a deep personal conversation. And these two guys shared with me that their relationships were in trouble, that they were in real pain. And one of them said, look, you might see me day to day in the office and it seems like I've got it together, but I'm just hanging in there. I'm just hanging in there. And I thought to myself, as I reflected on all this, how can I help those guys? How can I share Christ with them? How can I minister to them? How can I serve them if my heart is full of anger? And of course, the answer is I can't. Nor can I minister to the person who wronged me. Because that is what Christ calls me to. He says, love your enemies as yourself and pray. Pray for those who persecute you. He says, man's anger does not bring about the kind of righteous life that God desires. He says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek too. That is the love of God. That is what we need to take hold of. That is what we need to share. That is how we need to meet those kinds of challenges in life. We need to learn to die to ourselves and to put Christ first. And I just want to say, hey, look, sometimes that's hard. But by the grace of God, if we will do it, man, he will do a work in us. We will be light for in this world. We will be different. We'll be what we're called to be. And again, the question I want to ask you is who or what has captured your heart today? Who or what has taken the place that only Christ is entitled to? Has some other entitlement or sense of entitlement taken your place because I was entitled to be angry and that is a very very dangerous place to be because we can mistake an entitlement to be angry or to be hurt or whatever it is with a right to stay that way hey we can all have these reactions but Christ calls us to lay them down and to make the, the main thing the main thing to make him the main thing Mary had this wonderful mountaintop moment at the feet of Jesus. And have you ever noticed that when you have something like that that grips your heart, that it binds you up, that it stops you enjoying life, that it stops you enjoying Christ, and that it stops your ability to minister, to have a good relationship with other people? And yet, when we lay it down and when we say, I'm going to give that to you, Jesus, there's absolute freedom. Have you noticed that? Victory, victory. We sang it this morning, victory. His is the glory. Wow, when I allow him to take first place in my heart, he has the victory and boy, do I have joy in it. This is the I Am series where we learn about the identity of Jesus Christ. And as I was reflecting earlier in the week, I wanted to write down, well, what have I learned about him here? Here's what I've learned. He's the servant king. He's the lover of enemies. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Pharisees were after him. The cross was before him. But conflict was beneath him and salvation was within him. He was entitled to worship but accepted scorn. He was entitled to reign, but he chose to serve. He was entitled to honor, but he chose to suffer. He was entitled to glory, but he chose to know grief. He is the peacemaker between God and men. He is the lover of our souls who inspires our constant surrender to take my crown and to cast it down and say before all men, before angels and demons, before heaven and earth, he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy of my worship. He alone is the one that can occupy my heart rightfully. Worship means to bestow worth upon something. What are you bestowing worth upon today? Will you bestow all worth on Jesus Christ? It's the best thing you could possibly do. He alone is worthy. And no human hurt or anger will tear me from his grasp or fail to prevent his mighty transformation in my life so that I might love those who have wronged me, so that I might lay down my life for them. That's freedom. And I think when you come to that place, when you realize who Jesus is, our sufferings are not worth comparing. The injustices of the world are not worth comparing. They are not not worth it. It is not worth holding them in my heart. Why would I hold on to them? It was hard to forgive my colleague, especially when forgiveness hasn't been sought. But this is what the Lord says in the book of Lamentations. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. And so I did. Hosea says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. I want to testify testify to you this morning that this is true. And I'd like to invite the worship team to come up and lead us again. And as they do, I ask you to consider, is there something quite simply that has taken the place of Jesus Christ in your heart that has become more dominant in your life that has crowded him out? Perhaps it's a, it's a sense of, of bitterness, of anger, of frustration, of something in the way. Perhaps it's a worry or a fear. Or perhaps it's a, a sense of entitlement that you feel has been threatened. If that's you, I want to invite you this morning as we worship to come forward just as a symbol that you're putting that behind you, that you know what, don't want any part of it anymore, and to say, Christ, I want to give you my heart. Jesus, I want you to be the sole object of object of my worship that I want to give you absolutely everything so I'm going to pray for a moment here and then we're going to praise him how's that sound yeah father God I thank you that you have heard us this morning and that you are with us father we thank you that you are the only one worthy of praise and honor and glory and that we have seen you the glory of the one and only who was with God from the beginning not with physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith, God. And we see and we hear your word to us today to say that you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy of our worship. And Father, we are going to lay ourselves down before you today and say exactly that. Praise be to your name, Lord Jesus Christ. There is none like you. In Jesus' name, amen.